Well, today we're beginning a brand new series called Whatever. These are topics that we've wanted to talk about and relate to all our lives, but they don't warrant an entire series. So we decided to take some of these topics and make it into a series. So each weekend, you'll come in here guessing because we'll talk about whatever we want. Now, today we're going to kick it off with our own John Howard. Many of you know John and his wife Kelly. They started attending back when we met at the high school. John's worked on our staff since 2008. You'll often find him in the lobby between services, talking to people. He helps lead our group life ministry and also provides pastoral care. John's favorite hobby is definitely bicycling, no doubt about it. He's a lot of fun to work with. He's very passionate about his family and his faith. And I'm really grateful that he's part of our team. So please welcome John Howard as he comes and gives our whatever message this week. Wow, thank you. Ben, thank you. That was a great intro. And I do truly love biking. I spent five hours this morning watching the Olympics because the road race was today. And, uh, well, that's how much I like it. I gave up a day in the summer. But I do love the summer. I, I love the fact that we live in Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, we get to live outside three to four months a year. And so we cram as much living as we possibly can in into the summer months. And the summer has always been my favorite part of the year. Growing up in the 70s, in the summer, there were three critical times of the day for my brothers and sisters and I. I had three brothers and two sisters, and we had to be home at noon in the morning. We'd finish our chores, and then my mom and dad would just let us roam. We could just go wherever, but we had to be home at noon, and at noon, you might think we came home for lunch, but what we really did is we came home so if my mom could see if any of us needed stitches, did we have to go to the emergency room? And then as soon as lunch was done, we were able to take off again, and we'd go build forts, we'd go fishing, we'd build dams, whatever it was that you did in the summer, that's what we did. And then we had to be home at 5 o'clock at night because that was dinner time, and we all got together for a family dinner. And as kids, what we would do is we would just shovel our food in as fast as we could because we wanted to get back outside, and we wanted to play kick the can or baseball or whatever, we just wanted to get outside. And so one of my brothers or sisters and myself, we would eat as fast as we could, and then immediately we'd say, can I be excused? And my dad always answered the same way. I heard this hundreds, if not thousands of times. My dad would say, yes, you can be excused, but no, you may not be excused. And then he'd go on to explain, can is physical, May is permissive, and yes, you are physically able to get up from the table and to be excused. However, you do not have permission to do so. And I heard that my entire life. And so that's how I learned the importance of asking the right question to get the right answer. And that's always an important part in life is to ask the right question for that right answer. We're going to watch a clip from the movie Moneyball right here. Moneyball came out in 2011, and it's a movie about Major League Baseball. And in it, the premise, the character Jonah Hill, he, he's talking about how Major League Baseball is asking the wrong question. So let's take a look at the screens. There is an epidemic failure within the game to understand what is really happening. And... This leads people who run Major League Baseball teams to misjudge their players and mismanage their teams. I apologize. Go on. Okay. People who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. 
your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. You're trying to replace Johnny Damon. The Boston Red Sox see Johnny Damon and they see a star who's worth $7.5 million a year. When I see Johnny Damon, what I see is, is an imperfect understanding of where runs come from. The guy's got a great glove. He's a decent leadoff hitter. He can steal bases, but is he worth the $7.5 million a year that the Boston Red Sox are paying him? No. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. See, the premise of Major League Baseball has always been, who's the best player that we can get? But in this movie, they use a series of statistic and algorithms, and what they determine is the question isn't who's the best player. The question is, which players get on base the most often? Because if you can get a player on base, you can get runs. If you can get runs, you can get wins. And that strategy was actually applied, and a team won the World Series a couple of years after they put that into practice. Well, here's a question that I have wrestled with and prayed about my entire life. And the question is this. I have prayed, God, what is your will for my life? God, what is your will for my life? And as a kid growing up in the 70s, I thought for sure I knew the answer. Because in the 70s, we were sending man to the moon. And I loved watching every single minute of the Apollo missions I could. I watched liftoffs. I watched splashdowns. I watched the frogmen go and open the capsules for the um, astronauts. I know that Alan Shepard is the only man who ever played golf on the moon. He hit a six iron, and it went about five miles. I was so into the Apollo mission that I knew if I was this fascinated about it, clearly God's will for my life was to be an astronaut. I was going to walk on the moon. And then in 1974, my 11-year-old heart was crushed when they canceled the Apollo missions. We grew up across the street from the church I attended, and church was a big part of my life. I knew God, and I knew Jesus. And over and over, I would ask God, what is your will for my life? And I would never hear the answer. And I'd ask this question over and over again, and it was just silence. It was just crickets. And I knew the Bible stories. I knew that Moses was out for a hike in the hills, and I knew one day he's walking along, and there's this burning bush, and not only this burning bush, it's not consuming the bush, the burning bush starts speaking, and it says, Moses, remove your sandals. You're on holy ground. And then there's this guy named Saul, and he's going to become Paul, but right now he's Saul, and Saul is making a career out of persecuting Christians, and he's on his way to Damascus, and he's caught up in this blinding light. He falls off his horse. He's blind, and in that light, he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who is this? And Jesus says, it's me. Why not me? Where are my signs? Because I want signs. I would say things like, God, if this is your will for my life, just give me a sign. Open a door for me or or close a door or or just give me a sign. And I would grab a Bible and I would just close my eyes and flip and I would point and I'd say, okay, whatever this verse is, this is God's will for my life. And then I'd read the verse and I'd go, oh, I don't like that one. And then I'd flip and I'd do it again. But what about you? Because I imagine I am not the only one here that's asked that question or said that prayer. Maybe lots of you have. 
Maybe today you're here this afternoon and you're not a follower of Jesus. And we're really excited that you're here, but maybe you're in this process and you're saying something like, God, if you're real, give me a sign. God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. Or maybe you just graduated high school and you're in college, it's your first year in college, and you're wondering what you should major in. And you're praying to God, you're like, God, what is your will for my life? What should I major in? What should I study for the next four years? Or maybe you're a little bit beyond that. And now you're in the time of life where you're thinking about getting married. And you're saying, God, who is the person? Show me the person. Who is your will for me to marry in my life? Maybe you're asking that question about where to live or what job to take. And maybe you're in your retirement years right now and you're asking this question, God, what do you want me to do with the rest of my life? What's your will? And it's, also, it's almost like when we ask this question, it's almost like we expect God to reveal a detailed plan for our lives. But what if we're asking the wrong question? See, when we have major life decisions to make, we become more interested in God's will because we don't want to blow it. And we pray in hopes that God will make his will clear to us. And so we look for signs, we look for divine coincidences, open doors, and we look for anything that will indicate God's leading for our lives. And we maybe even pray a little bit more, and that prayer is over and over, God, show me your will. The most of us, most of us, we believe that God's will is both important and it's also elusive. It's important for obvious reasons. Anytime God has laid out a very specific plan, only a fool doesn't follow it. Last weekend, we talked about Jonah. We saw what happened to him, right? So God's will, it's elusive, right? It's hard for us to find. But if God's will is so important, then why is it hard for us to find? Well, the surprising answer is it isn't. Most of it is spelled out in black and white. It's not hidden. It's not like we're on this cosmic Easter egg hunt where some people are going to come up with an empty basket. But many of us feel this way because no matter how much we search, we come up with an empty basket. And the challenge comes from believing or being taught that God has this highly detailed plan for our lives, that there's a specific preordained career, there's a specific spouse, there's a specific house, there's a specific job, there's a specific car, and absolutely everything in between. And so we spend a lot of time looking for the right person or the right place or or the right thing that God has set aside. And this thing that we're looking for, that's the egg that we're hunting. But this blueprint idea, it's a myth because it confuses God's omniscience. Omniscience is a big word, and it just means it confuses God's ability to be all-knowing. God knows absolutely everything, and it confuses that with his divine will. Yes, God knows everything down to the numbers of hairs on our head, but he doesn't really care about how many we have. He doesn't have a plan for that. And I'm not in rebellion if I decide to maybe replace it. God doesn't have a blueprint for our lives, but he does have a game plan, and there's an important difference between a blueprint and a game plan. A blueprint, it's this specific set of instructions that spells out 
every detail. And it's so specific that anybody that can read blueprints, they can grab the blueprints and they can follow the architect's instructions. And if they follow them, they will build exactly what the architect has in mind. But if they don't follow them, the walls will come tumbling down. And so you don't mess around with blueprints, you follow them. And for many of us, this is the metaphor of God's will for our life. But game plans, game plans are different than blueprints because rather than spelling out details, it lays out guidelines and they lay out general principles that we can follow. There's a lot of flexibility and there's a lot of freedom to make adjustments as the game unfolds. In football, the Green Bay Packers are playing, right? And if the play calls for a pass, if Aaron Rodgers drops back to pass, but the linebackers are blitzing and the receiver isn't open, Rodgers isn't going to throw the ball just because the play calls for a pass. He's going to look for another receiver, and if they're not open, he's going to tuck that ball and he's going to take off running. But that doesn't mean that he can go ahead and run out of bounds, scoot up the sideline, and then come back in bounds. And it doesn't mean that he can throw the ball to an ineligible receiver. That's not allowed. But within the rules of the game, he has a lot of options. If plan A breaks down, he can adjust. But blueprints, they don't have a plan B. If they get messed up, it's back to the drawing board. And many of us want a blueprint for our lives because it's been ingrained in us. It provides us with comfort and assurance to know that God's got everything figured out. But what happens, what would happen if God's will was designed like a blueprint and it was designed down to the detail where God already had a spot for us to park at the mall during Christmas rush, right? What happens in a fallen world when other people ignore God's blueprint for their lives? It's not bad if they take our parking spot. But what if they buy the house that we're supposed to buy? Or what if they cheat on the college entrance exam and they get that last spot that was supposed to be ours? And now maybe you're thinking, no, God would just step in and stop that from happening. Well, then there goes free will. That's not to say that at times God doesn't have very specific and highly detailed plans for us. He told Hosea, Andy talked about Hosea several weeks ago, he told Hosea to marry Gomer. He told Moses when to move and when to break camp and where to go when they were wandering in the wilderness. Paul, Paul's his greatest missionary after he's done persecuting Christians, and he's on these missionary journeys, and God blocks him from going into a couple different countries. But these explicit instructions are the exception, and they're not the norm. See, we have greater freedom than any blueprint would allow, and that's the main reason why sometimes it just seems so hard to find God's details for our lives, because sometimes those details aren't there. We ask God, which car should I buy? And he says, I don't care. It's up to you. And in the vast majority of situations and decisions in our life, we have great latitude. God doesn't care where we work so much as he cares about how we work. God doesn't care so much about where we live, but he cares more about how we live. The challenge with this blueprint metaphor is we can become afraid to make a decision unless we get a clear yes from God. And I'm not even sure 
what a clear yes from God would even sound like. But blueprint mentality, it's this mistaken belief that there is one correct answer for every major decision in our life. And so we hesitate and we overthink and we reject a lot of good and acceptable options. But then what we also do is we focus on the wrong things. So instead of focusing on godliness, on justice and mercy and obedience, we focus on finding the right spouse, the right career, the right house to live in. These are important decisions. We all need to make them, but they are not as important as a life of obedience. And this blueprint mentality, it has us focusing on finding rather than becoming. And God's will is more about who we're becoming, and it's not about if we're finding the right spouse or the right house or or the right job. And so when we see God's will as a game plan, it emphasizes that his will is within our reach. All the basic guidelines and principles we need to know are found in Scripture. And with the basics in hand, we can know what to do. We can know how to think, how to live, and it doesn't matter how unusual or the complex the decision might be. And the longer we get, the longer we get practicing what Scripture says, the better we get at it. But the beauty is you don't have to be a Christian for year after year after year to start to begin to understand his will. Even the newest Christian can just start getting and digging in with what they already know. Because the important part and the starting, part, the starting point of obeying God's commands is just simply to obey, to obey the ones that we already know. See, once we start obeying, we are always going to be drawn closer into a relationship with God. If we obey him, we'll understand more. If we disobey him, we'll understand him less. And this helps explain why when we we, we go to see God's will for a major decision in in our lives, if we're currently disobeying what he's already told us to do, he's not going to answer. So we don't have to worry about the things we don't know. We can just start obeying with the things that we do know. And in time, more and more will come. This is just about mastering the basics. And in sports, they talk about learning the fundamentals, learning the basic skills to win a game. It can be tennis, golf, football, basketball. It doesn't matter. Every sport has basic skills that every player needs to learn and practice and to understand in order to have a chance to win. The same holds true for God's will. There are some fundamentals that we need to master in order to experience it. But the best part is these fundamentals are made up of clear black and white commands in Scripture, and they tell us what to do in any situation. Tell the truth. Be kind. Always repay evil with good. God does have a plan for us, but it's a game plan with lots of freedom, not a blueprint with every moment spelled out for us. Our our job isn't so much to find something, but our job is to become someone who reflects the image of Jesus. And we're not the first people to ever struggle with this question or to ever wrestle with, God, what is your will for my life? Paul, after, after, he, after he converts and he becomes, you know, the greatest missionary ever, he spends the remainder of his life 
planting churches and writing letters. And Paul's got this desire to go to Rome. And he doesn't know the people in Rome. He knows some people there, but he doesn't know the church. He doesn't know all the Jews. But he's writing this letter, and he's talking about everything that Jesus has already done for us. And in this letter, Paul's saying, I desire to come to you. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul, I'm going to sum it up. Here's what he says. He says, there's one true God And through our actions, we have separated ourselves from him. And there is nothing we can do to make it right with God. But because we can't do anything to make it right with God, God sent Jesus. And because of Jesus, we now belong to the family of God. So based on that, the right question is simply to ask God, what is your will? Because he's done everything for us before we even knew about him. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at two verses. We'll project the verses on the screen. And we're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brother, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brother, in view of God's mercy. And so he's talking about that, therefore, refers to everything that God has already done for it. It's that first 11 chapters. Paul says, this is what the mercy of God is. We were separated. He sent Jesus, and now we're right with him. Paul says, therefore, in lieu of that mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, we're sitting here in the 21st century, and that sounds like a lot of church speak. And I remember, as a child, I remember hearing verses like that saying, what does that mean? But you got to remember the context when Paul wrote this verse. Because when Paul was writing that letter, he's writing to this first century audience who totally knows what he's talking about. Because on every corner there is a temple, and each temple has its own spiritual act of worship. There's a temple of Diana, and she's this goddess of fertility, and you worship her through sex. There's a temple of Bacchus, and he's the god of wine, and you worship him through wine drinking wine and getting drunk. And so I can only imagine that those were probably two of the more popular temples. But this idea of a living sacrifice is new to them because we all know what a sacrifice is. You bring this live animal, the animal is slaughtered, and then it's put on the altar, and then it's burnt up, it's consumed by the fire, and that's what the sacrifice is. But Paul says, no, you make yourself a living sacrifice. And what you do is you give yourself to God daily, every day. You live for the day for God, and it's ongoing. And Paul says, God doesn't want anything from you. He just wants you. It's about the kind of person that we're becoming. It's about living for others. Paul's talking about following Jesus, and that means being a living sacrifice and acting on what we've already known about Jesus. Paul goes on to say, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul gives us two choices here. On one side, he says, don't conform to the patterns of the world anymore. And the pattern of the world is pretty simple. It says you're not good enough. 
It says, you don't have enough. You're not rich enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You are not good enough. And the pattern of the world says, go ahead and compare yourself to others around you. That's what the world tells us to do. The world's feeding us this lie. And when we compare ourselves to others, we're always going to end up either feeling inferior or inadequate. So Paul says, don't conform to the patterns of the world. Instead, he says, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because over here, we have a different choice. Because God came and said, you're enough. God says, you don't have to do anything. God says, you don't deserve my love, but I love you. And because I loved you, you can love. So Paul says, we can believe God, and we can believe that we're enough. And when we do that, we're transformed or we can conform to the patterns of the world and believe what the world says. So Paul's telling us, think new thoughts. That's how we renew our minds. We renew our minds when we believe what God says about us. And a renewed mind focuses on knowing what Jesus did, and not only knowing what Jesus did, the renewed mind focuses on doing what Jesus did. Jesus had some crazy radical teaching. Jesus said, love your enemies. He said, anybody can love the people that love him, but you, you love your enemies. Jesus said, you do whatever you can do to live at peace with others. Jesus said, I am the greatest, yet I came to serve, not to be served. And so Jesus says, you go and serve. And so when we renew our minds, that's lived out in our daily actions. Paul said, offer yourself as living sacrifices. Don't conform to the patterns of the world. Don't believe these lies over here but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Believe what God said about you. Then, Paul finishes it, then we will know what his will is. God, what is your will for my life? No, the better question, God, what is your will? And the beauty is, Jesus gave us the answer. In Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. On the last night of Jesus' life, he's doing some amazing teaching. He's got his disciples in the upper room. And in John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus says, my command is this. Love one another as I have loved you. See, the will of Jesus is for us to love God and to love others as he's loved us. God's will for us has always been relational. It's not rational, but we try to turn it into something rational when we say, God, who's your will? Who's that person? What's your will? Who's your person you want me to marry? Or, or where do I live? Or, or what job should I take? God's will is about where we are in Christ, not where we are in life and who might be with us, God's will is for us to be in a relationship with him. And I know I'm going to find myself doing this again, but when you find yourself and you're asking and you're wondering this question and you're saying, God, what is your will for my life? Change up that question and just simply say, God, what is your will? Because the will of God isn't hidden from us. And then we just simply act on what we know to be the will of Jesus, and we just do it daily. Do what Jesus did. Love others. Have compassion on them. That's what he told us to do. 
It's not about what job we should have, what should we major in. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Live righteously, and he will give us everything he needs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all ways, he will make your path straight. Old Testament, Micah, seek God's mercy and justice. Walk humbly with God. Imagine what our lives could be like. Imagine what your workplace could be if you just acted on what you already knew. What if you went into work on Monday morning, and what if you just stopped getting involved in the petty arguments? What if you just decided that you were going to love? What if you just decided that you were going to have compassion? What if you decided that you were going to be kinder? Do you think your workplace could change? Do you think you could change those relationships? Can make your, place, your workplace better? What if we took that same teaching, just what we knew about Jesus, love God, love others, be kind, be nice, walk humbly, be compassionate. What if we took that and we applied it to our relationships in our homes? or in our marriages. Would our marriages improve? Probably, right? Absolutely. And what if we just started doing that all the time? We could actually change our communities. We could change the world we live in. We would have less conflict, and we would have more joy. And we could just be who God created us to be. We could follow the will of Jesus and do what he told us to do. See, God's will is less about the plan that we want him to chart for our lives, and it's more about having a relationship with him. It's becoming more like Jesus. And Jesus gave us a couple commands to do. Tonight, I'm really excited. Tonight is our big baptism bash, and we have a number of people that are signed up to be baptized. Well, we know the will of Jesus when it comes to baptism. Jesus went down to the River Jordan, got baptized by John. That was the beginning of his ministry. And in Jesus' final years, the, the final day, before he goes up to heaven, he says, hey, teach everyone what I taught you. Go to make disciples and baptize them. And so I'm really excited we have a bunch of people being baptized. But maybe you're looking for a sign, and maybe you've been thinking about baptism, and maybe you haven't been at River Glen. You know, it's the summer. There's a lot to do. And so maybe you've been doing some other things. But here we are. You've been thinking about baptism, and you can get baptized tonight. Doesn't matter if you didn't bring anything. We planned for you not bringing anything. We had a detailed plan. We have towels. We have shorts. We have T-shirts, really cool T-shirts. You can keep it. If you haven't been baptized, I can tell you that Jesus' will is that you do. And so maybe you want to take that next step. Right after service, just head out in the lobby. There's a table out there. There's some wonderful people. They'll tell you what to do next, and we'll get changed, and then we'll go and be baptized. But what Jesus also told us to do is on the night right before his death, it was the last, sum, last supper, and in a minute here, we're going to take communion. And Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this bread. This bread represents my body, and I want you to take this cup, and this cup represents my blood. And I want you to eat, and I want you to drink, and I want you to do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? We remember that we were separated from God and he loved us so much that he sent Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross, and he paid his price. He paid our price. He paid the price of our sins on the cross. His will is that we just freely accept what he's done for us. When we do these things, we're in the will of God. 
So right now I'm going to pray, and then we'll take communion. Our communion's open to everybody. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake. So let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity to just get together as a church and to come and to learn and to have you speak to us. God, I know in my life, and I'm sure others too, we want this detailed plan, but that's not how you work. God, you operate with just asking us to love and to trust and to believe. God, we are made right, we're made holy, and we're made pure, not because of anything that we've done, but because you loved us, because you declared us enough. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing that. God, give us the strength and the wisdom to just go forward and to do do the same. And God, I pray for everyone being baptized tonight. I, I pray that if there's people thinking here, God, that they would like to be baptized and didn't come prepared to do it, that they would just take that step. God, we love you, and thank you for sending Jesus. And it's his name I pray. Amen.